0: welcome to the hot stove society radio show on cairo radio coming to you live from the uh, or live on tape from the hotel andre in downtown seattle just uh we're in the second floor above lola restaurant across the street from the brand new dahlia bakery and the brand new serious pie downtown uh my name is tom douglas and you own many joints around the city i certainly so do i've been i've been hanging out at the carlisle room lately it's been it's our third week open uh Today is the beginning of our fourth week open, which is very exciting. Wow. And the theater business is back open. And I know. Starting, there's
1: a lot of show at the Paramount.
0: Yeah, starting to work on Lola. Hopefully, we uh, oh. have it open mid-October. Everyone wants me to just turn around and open It's like, hello? It
1: took me 32 years to build these restaurants. You can't just open <laughs> yeah, them all Yeah, people don't time. understand the amount of work it takes. <laughs>
0: yeah. But anyway, that's besides the point. I'm having a good time. And... Uh, uh, you, sir, are I'm retired. And I'm Thierry the chef in a hat, retired. Yeah. Retired? <laughs> I like that
1: word. I'm going to use that well, for you. Well, you are. Yes, I am. Even if it's temporary, you're retired now. That's right. And uh, having a great time doing it. It's been fabulous. And um, did a quick drive to La Conner last uh, few days ago to La Conner just for lunch at um, uh, Ted First uh, and Kathy. Uh, restaurant over there. They have a restaurant called Nell Thorn. Okay. <laughs> and, um, it was delicious. We had a fabulous lunch sitting outside right on the, on the canal there on the river, whatever mm-hmm. you call that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: In Lacanor. And I was, I hadn't been to Lacanor in probably. 10 years, more, more than that. Well, more than that for me, I can tell yeah. you. So. it's and, a uh, sweet little town. Sweet. very sweet little town. The,
0: the fantastic voices popping up are Sean, our, our, our activation specialist here for <laughs> our technical challenges and Pamela, our producer. Today's big show is going to be, uh, you know, last week we had on the, the ladies from Phnom Penh Noodle House and Terry went and, uh, got a bug up his ear and, uh, And tried it out. What a nice discovery. That's all I'm going to say. It's apple season, and you have brought us, uh, Mr. Rotero, some delicious silky applesauce. Let's find out more about that later. Uh, Sahana Vij will be here for two segments to talk about her new book. Uh, bake Away, 20 Recipes Capturing the Spirit of Creativity, Experience, and Expression. And Pamela, I believe all the money raised on this book goes to... The author chairman. proceeds, No Kid Hungry.
2: Yep. No, no Kid oh, Hungry. Oh, nice. There you go. Really nice.
0: Wow. Uh, what makes the best meatball? I just did another version of the Prosser Meatball Project, which... Uh, I, uh, Prosser Meatball
1: Project, do tell. Well,
0: it's uh, every once in a while, uh, when we run out of meatballs, uh, I buy 20 or 30 pounds of mixed different meats. You know, we have part of a steer in our freezer over there, so we have right. tons of ground beef. But then I bring over ground chicken and Italian sausage. And and we, uh, Loretta, my daughter, and um, her husband, Jackie, and Sharon, Grandma Sharon over there, uh, we all get together and make meatballs to, to lard our freezers throughout the, you know, they're in Magnolia, we're in Ballard, the farm. Uh, once in a while, we'll bring a meatball to Pamela because she's the meatball queen. Love them. I was going to name a restaurant after Pamela's <laughs> obsession with meatballs called the Meatball Fantasy. And it <laughs> just, just, could hasn't, still happen. It's just hasn't happened yet, but it might still happen. I you've talked about that
1: a few times. I that know. would be a good restaurant.
0: Uh, so we're going to talk about what makes the best meatball, uh, which is always fun. We're going to play... Uh, At the end of our show, uh, Rub With Love Tasty Trivia. Uh, And we have a victim uh, all picked out, ready
1: to go. Uh, But first, let's
0: jump into our Taste of the Week. Mine is, you know, the Carlisle Room, as I said, has been open. And uh, yesterday on Evening Magazine, I I taped my Evening evening Magazine segments here. No, it's called Evening, not Evening Magazine. Not not Magazine, I'm sorry, Evening Show. I tape them here, and uh, because I've been hanging out at the Carlisle Carlisle Room, so much. I don't know why I can't speak today, but uh, we've been selling these hush puppies with a spicy uh, pimento cheese and some. Uh, we are just picking the last of our, I think they're called Blood Summer Peaches off the trees at Prosser. So we're making a little uh, peach jam to drizzle mm. over top of our hot hush puppies uh, that are filled with not only cornmeal, corn flour, A little corn starch, baking powder, you know, baking soda, buttermilk. But then I, I put fresh Prosser corn, like shucked off the Mm -hmm, cob, mm -hmm. into my hush puppies. Mm. And they were just, we made them here uh, the other day. They were light as air. Uh, they're so delicious and trashy good. And, you know, when I get the word trashy in front of something, that is the highest form of compliment for yeah. me.
1: It's a, it's like a new just... form of, of uh, beautiful and delicious. Yeah, and... trashy
0: good, like, yeah. Our, like our coconut prawns, right? Exactly. They're trashy good. Uh, so, uh, anyway, so that's my taste of the week. Uh, a little pr- uh, Carlisle Room Hush Puppies with pimento cheese and spicy peach jam. Mm, mm, mm. And the pimento cheese is full of Jackie's peppers. I mean, it's Prosser Farm all the way.
1: My taste of the week is uh, vanilla ice cream profiterole with chocolate sauce. I actually mm, yeah. made that from S- scratch <laughs> at home, which, by the way, um, thank God we had a restaurant to make these things, because you know, it's a good thing to make at home. It's fun, but boy, it- does it take much longer than doing it in a restaurant. <laughs> I know, and there's a lot of dishes. <laughs> it's just nonstop. It's just bad. Did uh, you make the ice cream, too? No, I actually... Uh, well, then you didn't make it from scratch. Right. <laughs> I made it from Chef, scratch because uh, I, I believe actually been... scooped the ice cream from the agenda? I Agandas believe you pot. were just embellishing on your story right well, now. I'm, uh, what I was going to talk about was actually the chocolate sauce, which was just basically Valrona, mm-hmm. Pepits, you know, those little pieces of chocolate, mm-hmm. melted down very slowly, and then added some boiled um, cream, cream and milk. almond milk, and I did both because I didn't want it to be just cream. You know, and Joe slowly put it into there and made this wonderful, silky chocolate sauce. And um, I think a lot of people don't really know how to make a chocolate sauce, which I found out because even my wife was like, oh, that's uh, okay. Because mine, you know, many people make the mistake of taking their cream and putting it into the chocolate cold, Mm -hmm. which basically becomes a ganache. Yeah, it (laughs) seizes
0: everything up, too. You
1: know, it's what a ganache is, basically. So. Um, instead, you just have to boil it and bring it into your chocolate so it melts and everything stays at the same temperature, basically. So anyway, I just and wanted to touch on that. And then next to that, I went to the farmer's market and got the last of the raspberry of the year. Then I think it's going to be the last of the raspberry. And made a wonderful um, coolie like but puree, not, not strained, around the uh, chocolate sauce on the plate. Mm-hmm. So you had bittersweet chocolate sauce and... You had um, raspberry coulis, Mm -hmm. not too sweet, Mm -hmm. very raspberry. Very classic French there, buddy. Oh, very classic, but also very, you know, it's it's funny because you don't, it's so classic that we don't actually do it very often. Mm. But when you do it, you go, that's why it's called a classic. Yeah, it's old-fashioned in a fun way. And it's delicious at the end of a meal. Are you kidding? It's fabulous.
2: It endured the test of time for a reason. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly.
0: All right, it's time to do a report on our visit, your visit, to the Phnom Penh Noodle House. Those ladies were so sweet last week. Very. Uh, we just both wanted to get out there and
1: support their restaurant. I tried to drive by it. I couldn't find it. Yeah, you know what? Kenton Jackson. I had, I said, had right? a little bit of a talk with them about a few things about... Um, oh, I'll, we'll, we'll go into this in okay. the next segment. I couldn't find it. Anyway, it's Tom and Terry in the Hot
0: Stove Society Kitchen on Cairo Radio 97.3 FM. And we're back. It's the Hot Stove Society show on Cairo Radio. My name is Tom Douglas. And mine is Thierry Roth. You're the chef in a hat. And Thierry, you've been on the road. You went all the way from Madison Valley to the International District. That's right. Uh, Even though you're retired, you still made the drive. It was actually... What was it? uh, A mile and a half or two miles?
1: (laughs) Believe it or not, it wasn't even that. It was on the way back from the show. I was hungry and I was like... But when I go now... So you went right after the show
0: <laughs> right last week? Oh, show. yeah. Thanks for the invite, pal. Um,
1: I was already... You know, I was I'm mean, literally... I was in Chinatown because I went... For some reason, I messed up my... Normally, I go this way. I go mm-hmm. east. But this time, I went south. And I was like, I'm in Chinatown already. I'm like, oh, wait. Why don't I just stop now? And so Perfect. you did. You found parking. I, I found parking right on the street on Jackson. So this place is called... Phnom, it's called Phnom Penh. It is a Cambodian restaurant, and it is located, if you if you go up Jackson, you know, from Chinatown, you go up Jackson going, uh, what, that, east? East. And you go right up past the bridge of I-5, mm-hmm. underneath I-5, mm-hmm. right there is, there is a new building there on the right, on the south side, and um, at the corner of that building there on the, on the west side. Right, so I did see it then, I just didn't see a sign, I well, guess. Uh, there, was a, there is a few things we can talk about, you know, about young people getting into the restaurant business, even though they don't want to hear Papa talks about and telling them what to do. Mm-hmm. There are a few things that I suggested to them, which is go to Uprint, get a banner, put it on the top of your restaurant and says, we're open for business. This mm-hmm. is Phnom Penh. So people see it they have a little sign on the sidewalk that you cannot see because the car parked in front of it <laughs> oh, so that's no. the only sign they have they're waiting yeah. they're waiting for their sign uh, to their to their side they told me that they have ordered the sign but it's taking forever because of what's going on mm-hmm. with covid right mm-hmm. now so this cambodian restaurant is run by two sisters or actually a whole family because there is three sisters actually right. one is a chef and two of them are more uh, you know their first is support yeah support yeah and um they're they're very charming and they're very nice and their father started the business 38 years ago um in chinatown uh with yeah, a, I know. you know and and that's where the whole story comes from so i went there and i said you know just just show this me this is after they were on the show
0: so this is after they were on the show in, and so you they and, recognized you
1: yeah yeah and, and they were there mm-hmm. and uh, i've never had cambodian food so i was very curious and i said listen just send me what's truly Cambodian so I can have at least a, a flavor of what's going on. So my my overall take on everything we had that day was a meeting of, it's going to sound very obvious, but a, a meeting of Vietnamese and Thai food. Mm-hmm. That's the way I felt when I was eating the food and looking at the dishes, how they were presented with the ingredients and they were having. It It, it was just basically... To me, I felt like it was, I mean, it's their own, and it's a little bit different, obviously. It's got, it's got their own touch, but the general flavor, as, a, as somebody who never had it and just see it for the first time and mm-hmm. test it for the first time, was reminding me of a cut between Thai and uh, Vietnamese food.
0: And so why is it called the Noodle House? Is that their specialty? Yeah, they do. They do, make noodles? They do, noodles or? They
1: do s- tiny rice noodles. They do wide noodle. Mm-hmm. They do different kind of noodles, so... I had about six different dishes. One was loclac, which is a tender beefsteak cubes marinated with um, garlic, cracked pepper, house spices, and then um, it's t- sealed in a wok and then served with outboiled, boiled egg, red onion, and lemon pepper vinaigrette. So, that was one of the dishes. That was really remarkable. I would recommend that. It's called lock No. How was the egg in that? So it's hard boiled. Hard boiled, sliced, was it
0: chopped. It was sliced.
1: Yeah, sliced. Yeah. Um, I, had, I think I had hard boiled egg in two or three different dishes, and they were all sliced. Um, and in one of them, I had scrambled egg. Mm-hmm. So they use eggs in dishes, you know, quite a bit. Just like pad thai has a lot yeah, of eggs. Yeah, just egg like pad it. thai. You know, you, it's yep. the same. It, that's where, that's what I was saying between the noodle and the, you know, the thick brown sauce based, mm-hmm. soy based kind of idea. Um, it reminded me of, 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 of that pad thai idea. Um, I also had the Nampan special rice noodle and, um, with prawn, calamari, fish cake, fish ball, ground pork. And um, thin rice noodles, finished with green onion, cilantro, and roasted garlic. And that was mm-hmm. super, super delicious. Mm-hmm. That was, um, it's, it's what you, you think of every culture as dishes like that, as, as one of those dishes where you go, I, w- I could eat this every day. That mm-hmm. would be totally fine with me to have that as a you know, final dish of, for the rest of my life. Maybe not forever, but, <laughs> you know, because that's kind of... right. But
0: well, anyway. and also in that in the Asian cultures, you often see that meat and seafood mix right. uh, more than you see it in our culture. You know, here you might see a bacon as an accent in a Correct. seafood dish, but uh, there, uh, at least the menus that I've been to, because I've not been there personally, but uh, there's pork and shrimp in lots of dim sum. There's you know pork and shrimp are very common.
1: Yeah, and and in the shrimp, they use shrimp and they use shrimp bo- or fish bowl, and they use you know they use they use it in different contexts. You know, it's like in the same plate. You know, you get fish bowl on one side, you get meatball on the other side, and you've got shrimp sealed on the, on the <clears> other <throat> side. So all those three different components bring serious change of texture in your mouth when you're eating it. And uh, also, when I was eating the um, laklak, they were showing me how to eat it. you remember how? Yeah. Uh, Don, I think it's Dawn's name. Yeah. Yeah, she was insisting on saying, this is how you should eat it. And she showed me with a fork and a spoon, you know, put one pile on one plate and eat the whole thing. So you have a bite of every single items on that on that dish it was really it was delicious i mean i did not eat anything and even the the spice level in the spicy dishes was not it was it was fine i mean i and was you're winning. a
0: spice weenie so that's, that's yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> no exactly i mean yeah. it, it was it was totally comfortable for me to mm-hmm. eat that 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 food remarkably um, i think a lot of noodles a lot of um protein did not see as much um, i had one plate with broccoli Um, shiitake, mushroom, carrots, cranberry egg, Chinese broccoli, and that was the mekatong saivi, Mm -hmm. and um, that was really, really delicious. Wide rice noodle, we had those rice noodles that were about half an inch thick, The fresh uh, ones? Yeah, fresh noodles. Mm -hmm. That was really delicious, and it it made for a great stir fry. That kind of reminded me of um, the Thai but except Pad Thai is often, I think, but Pad Thai is one of those dishes that gets bastardized. I think from yeah. different restaurants, mm-hmm. you know, you have it when it's the best. You definitely know it, and you know why it's called mm-hmm. such a body, such a popular dish. But it is unfortunately bastardized, and yeah. this was reminding me of what a great Pad Thai would be like um, in terms of comparison. Um, I would recommend anybody to uh, try to go to that restaurant. Again, it's located right after the on the pass of. I-5 going up Jackson from... Um,
0: on the south side of the street.
1: On the south side of the street in yeah. a new building, fairly new building. They've been there for about 18 months. Um, just a lovely... Boy, uh, that's tough to still be waiting on your sign 18 months later. I know. Almost. And and I hope they get a banner. <laughs> and I tried to call them through their phone number, and it was the same thing. I was like, you need to put a message on there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, little things like this, and, and I... I I just want people to support this kind of, um, I think they deserve to be supported because they really, really put a lot of emphasis on making the food real and the food really delicious. So um, go there and give it a shot. And I just want to give them a plug. That's all. All right. Pong Pen Noodle House.
0: So P-H-N-O-M, right? Yeah. Phnom Pen P N P E N H Noodle House.
1: If you don't know, right. refer to the capital of Cambodia.
0: Yeah. Coming up, uh, Rebecca and Lindsey from the Washington Apple Commission. Going to talk about the new crop. Uh, literally, when I came back from the farm on Tuesday, I was on I eighty two for fifteen minutes. Fifteen full double semis of apples being picked oh, and in the wow. fields. The fields are just alive right now. On Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, ninety seven three FM. It's the Hot Stove Society Radio Show. My name is Tom Douglas. And I'm Terry Rotary, the chef in the hat. And today, Terry, we're going to talk apples. You know, I drive over to the farm once a week in Prosser, and I try to help because Jackie's short on uh, helpers right now, uh, my wife. I try to drive over on Sunday night, and I drive back Monday with a car load, 45 totes of uh, produce, and she can fit 30 totes in her car. So that's about 75 totes a week that they're picking and processing and sending over, and but you know what you have to do when you're driving in Prosser right now? There's two big two big problems. One is the hop trucks. They go very slow, and they're picking tons and tons of hops. And then these Apple trucks are all over the place, and they're, they're buzzing by you at great rates of speed, and they're uh, loaded tall with empty totes. And then the, once they're full, they're loaded about half that size uh-huh. on the back of two trailers. Each truck has two trailers and they come and and when i drive by them on the freeway you can read the tags on the side of these big bins to see what kind of fruit it is you know what kind of apple it is and then uh where field and what uh what cold house are going so
1: to. you would know which truck to hijack
0: yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> so the cosmic crisp is the truck to hijack we've invited todd fryhover the president of the washington apple commission to come on and tell us a little bit about this season's produce if there's any if you are driving on the freeway there's no idea or there's no mis- idea, i should say that there's it's not a good season it is packed with produce hi todd
3: good morning thank you for having me
0: absolutely i've uh i've uh, i drive by your trucks all i know they're not your trucks personally but i drive by the trucks so often that it's uh, i feel like i'm one of the teamsters
3: well you're absolutely correct this is the time of season where we have many trucks on the road and we'll continue to have trucks on the road probably well into november
0: yeah tell us about this year's harvest uh, smoke issues anything that's uh Uh, good and bad about this, uh, this harvest and finding workers and truckers and all the things that the world is dealing with during the pandemic?
3: That's quite a list, so I'll try to address what I can. So as far as the harvest goes in Washington State, we are harvesting, and we have different varieties, and those varieties mature at different times. So what you're seeing on the road right now is honeycrisp, which I'm sure most of your audience is familiar with, and also gala. My so favorites. That, excuse me? Those are my two favorites. Oh, fantastic. Well, now we talked about Cosmic Crisp. Isn't that one of your favorites? No, too?
1: not that, yet. That, that oh, one. our, last year, that won, that won our <laughs> apple tasting here at the hot stove. It did. Time. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. We did a blind testing of uh, six different apple, and that was the one that came up first. Well, I think, Todd, Todd did you invent it? At the commission? No,
3: no. <laughs> I, I wish I did. I, I wouldn't be talking to you right now.
0: Oh, <laughs> I see. That hurts. I see. Yeah.
3: <laughs> well, anyhow, so harvest has just started. Uh, we're going to continue on, like I said, through November, and we'll progress to the different varieties. I think, in principle, we have a real good crop this year. The coloration is, is really coming on. The, the key is is the differentiation between the nighttime temperature and the daytime temperature. And if there's 30 or 40 degrees, it's absolutely ideal for coloration. So that's great. As far as our quantity goes, we're expecting to be maybe slightly larger than last year. So we count everything in fresh bushels, and you'll know a, a bushel as a fox. You already mm-hmm. mentioned the totes earlier. And this year we're estimating 124,850,000 bushels.
1: Oh, wow. my wow. goodness. That's Isn't a lot it? of picking. Yeah. No wonder no wonder It, it is. No wonder there's a lot of truck on the road.
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Yeah, there's no question about that. And it takes 60,000 people to harvest our crop. 60,000.
2: And you found enough people this year? That's incredible.
3: Well, we're, you know, what's happening is, as far as a, a labor force here in, in the state, or specifically here in Washington State, no, we do not have enough. No question about it. We do participate um, as individual organizations in the H-2A program, which is a, a program where we contract with workers from out of the country, and we fly them here, we give them a place to stay, we pay them a very good wage, we transfer them back and forth to the orchards, and then we pay for them to go back home, and that really is our only alternative Due to the labor constraints we have here in not only the state of Washington, but in the United States,
0: it sounds expensive. Wow. Well, it is, except it's spread out over a lot of apples. Yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. yeah I think everybody has to pick about a million. So that's mm-hmm. not too bad. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> and it, uh, the, your website says every apple is hand picked. That's, that's why correct. you need such a generous number.
3: That's correct. And if you can just think about an apple tree in in general, you know, it's it's fairly, you know, there's an outside, there's an inside, there's a top, there's a bottom. You know, the technology has not caught up where we can do that mechanically yet. Although I will say some of the new orchards are mostly on what we call a trellis system. So they're on a wire and they create a fruiting wall. So they are set up. When this technology becomes efficient to be harvested
0: mechanically, mm-hmm. like grapes, a lot of grapes are harvested mechanically. Right, now. right. Yeah, wine
3: grapes in particular. Yeah, absolutely, mm-hmm. you're correct.
0: Yeah. And so, uh, quality-wise, um, when you see this difference in temperature, like we're seeing at our farm over there in Prosser, a good thirty or forty degrees difference between uh, the low at night and the high in the afternoon um when you say it brings color what does it do for flavor does it uh, does it make the acid sugar balance better or what, what are you looking for what's if it's a hot night what does that do it makes it flabby i would think
3: right exactly well you know there's a number of things that impact the apple and the weather of course being number one and as you suggest you're absolutely right you know apples that are that are let's say green and what i mean is flesh colored green they don't have a lot of sugar, but they have a tremendous amount of starch. So the longer you leave that fruit on the tree, that starch converts into sugar mm-hmm. and obviously improves the flavor of the fruit. Now, however, one there is a balance, and the balance is fruit stores much better when it has high starch levels versus having high sugar level. So we start picking a little bit early, so we can put fruit back into controlled atmosphere for marketing later in the year,
0: mm-hmm.
3: and then we wait. And the fruit that we put on the market currently would have high sugar values to it.
0: Can a sophisticated palette, sorry, Terry? Uh, okay. Can a sophisticated palate tell the difference uh, in June uh, between a June apple and a November apple, like when, right when it was picked, and one that's been in uh, cold storage? I don't think I can personally.
3: Well and I think that's absolutely true. You know, I think there is very little difference. You know, we have a 12-month supply here in the state of Washington. The the fruit is put into these controlled atmosphere storage rooms. They they essentially go to sleep. It maintains their fruit quality during that time. So there really isn't much difference between a a gala that you might eat in in October and a gala you might eat in April or May. Mm-hmm.
1: So, do they keep ripening? Is that what you're saying in no, storage? So they go to sleep. Or they just go to sleep and that's it, and they stay as is? So, how does the yeah. how does the uh, the sh- the starch become sugar if it doesn't keep living or mm-hmm. keep working?
3: Well, it, okay, so we can't shut it off completely. So the fruit does continue to respirate. So okay. it, it will mature in the CA room at mm-hmm. a slow rate. What we do on controlled atmosphere is if you can imagine a, a big room, a room that could hold, you know, 2,000 bins of what was mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. we take out the, the O2 and the CO2 and we get them down to very low percentages, under 3%, and we pump back in nitrogen. And that mm-hmm. is the way that we basically control the quality through controlled atmosphere storage.
0: Got it. That makes sense. That's typical throughout yeah. the industry, right? Whether it's tomatoes or avocados or apples or, or whatever, right? Cherries. That,
3: that's exactly yeah. correct. You know, one thing we don't do that that probably happens a lot, especially in the banana industry, is we don't do any ripening. So we're not introducing ethylene into these rooms to try mm-hmm. to get them riper because typically riper fruit is also softer and doesn't taste as good.
1: Right.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Interesting. Interesting.
0: Uh, We've been talking with Todd Fryhover. He's uh, with the Washington Apple Commission. Matter of fact, he's El Presidente. And uh, we are going to, in our next segment, Todd, we are going to talk about how to cook all these delicious apples, both in savory and sweet ways. So thanks for giving us a little primer course on, uh, on how you guys pick them and store them and have them ready for market year round that we, as chefs, can then enjoy them, um, all the
1: time and boy are they delicious that is different i'm so glad that this is the fruit of the state <laughs> well, we
3: have a lot of different alternatives out there now we're planting and growing you know tens 20 30 40 new varieties out there so wow. please wow. try them all and eat many
0: Try them all, eat many. <laughs> and when you're driving around uh, over in eastern Washington, it really is interesting to look at all the different trellising systems, uh, the older uh, uh, orchards compared to the newer orchards, uh, all, all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And, of course, uh, we take the, when they take out an orchard and they cut it all up into firewood, we take that for our pizza oven. That's th- right. Right here wood. in <laughs> Seattle, yeah. <laughs>
3: Thank you, that's Todd. Good. You're welcome. My pleasure, gentlemen. Thank uh, you very much. Right, You're yeah, very so welcome.
0: All right. That's uh, that's a primer. Like I said, when we come back, Tom and Terry are going to talk how to cook these delicious little nuggets on, uh, on the Cairo Radio 97.3 FM Hot Stove Society Radio Show. And we're back. It's the Hot Stove Society Radio Show right here on Cairo. Uh, Chef in the Chapeau has brought us a beautiful silky bowl of applesauce.
1: That's right, sir. Every year. So
0: t- tell us about that. Now, we heard all about the harvest in the last segment, getting it picked, and getting it in the controlled environments and all that thing. Let's talk about what actually makes it taste good at the table, outside of just being a delicious apple raw. Yeah. But when you cook with them, either sweet or savory,
1: what makes apples pop? Um, I think that, number one, don't be afraid if you have holes in your apples. That means and some visitors has come in, and those visitors have a better palate than you have. Mm-hmm. So that means your apple is actually very delicious. Uh, I'm just saying that because I have a dwarf apple tree with three different kinds of apple in it. Mm-hmm. I don't actually know the name of them, but there's two green um, style of apples that are pretty uh, low on sugar, and there's one sweet, mealy kind of reddish apple. Mm-hmm. And those are the apples I have in my tree. And that tree, I've been trying to kill it for like, I don't know how many years now, because I'd I like the room in my garden. But that tree won't die, and it just keeps producing so many apples. Like mm-hmm. two five-gallon bucket of apple in a tree that's only six foot tall. Right. I mean, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. And uh, and there's a lot on the ground. So usually what I do is, the one I can save from the ground that are not rotted, I'm going to make, and I cut them in pieces and make vinegar with white wine, red, white wine vinegar, Put that in the bucket and let it sit for about seven, eight months. Then I bring it to a boil and then sterilize it. And then I have apple vinegar on my hand. The other one that are from the tree, and a lot of them, Kathy is the one who peeled them and cleaned them. She bring a big bowl of them in the house. And they were full of holes. Like, many of them had holes in it. Like, somebody has been in there. Well, it's called organic right. farming. Right. We, we have birds and we have squirrel and we have, you know, many things in the backyard. So, um, yes. Yes. Anyway, cut those in two pieces, peeled and seeded obviously, and then throw them in a the pot with a little bit of apple cider, just a tiny bit to have a little bit of liquid on the bottom instead of water. I'm using a little bit of apple cider. And then put that together and let it cook very slowly for probably, well, what I'm looking for is first your apples are going to render all the water, so you're going to have a very heavy, soupy, yeah. very heavy liquid mass, and you're going to go, "Oh my god, what is that? You know, it doesn't look like apple sauce." Well, you have to cook it slowly. And stir it, you know, obviously, because it was going to want to stick to the bottom. As uh, Todd was saying, the president of the Apple Association uh, was saying earlier, there's a lot of starch in apples, so um, don't fool yourself. Apple, do stick to the bottom of your pot. So you stir it from time to time. You keep it covered at the beginning, and then you remove the cover so the water evaporates. And you cook it for a good two, three hours, slowly. And then at the end, what I do is I take a good bottle of Calvados, good Calvados, Mm and i throw in probably calvados
0: is a Norm- normandy apple brandy basically. correct it's yeah. an
1: apple brandy it's a good apple brandy mm-hmm. and i throw in probably the equivalent of like four or five shots into my my
0: which is it's not that uh, much in a big pot of
1: well i mean it's how many apples is that 30 apples Oh no! More than that. Okay. So yeah, it's like not fifty that much. apples. Yeah. No, it's not that much. I would but use a whole bottle. It's it's about a half a bottle, okay. half a bottle of of um, of Calvados, put it in there, and then I bring that to a boil, and I cook it for about two minutes just to burn the alcohol, because I don't want the alcohol to be the prominent flavor, mm-hmm. and then I stop the whole thing, and then I put it in my Vitamix, and I put everything blended to, you know, to a puree, and then I put everything into jars, and I can them. I So you don't strain it? I don't strain it. You don't have to strain it. That's the beautiful thing about Vitamix is it blends fast enough, then it will puree everything to Mm -hmm. death. Mm -hmm. So everything is looking like a liquid sauce like you have now. Mm -hmm. And then I put it in jars, and I uh, seal it and uh, cook it in boiling water for about 15 minutes. And then there we go. We got the harvest in, in the cellar and... Uh, you get some for Christmas.
0: Well, every, everyone here just immediately remarked on how smooth and creamy and silky it was.
1: Right. And that's the idea. And,
0: and that's what you get from cooking it so long. Right. And that's something I never do. Right. right. My applesauce is just apples, a little brown sugar, and a little apple cider for some moisture, but a very little bit. And my applesauce is done in 20 minutes. So it's just a different style.
1: Yeah, no, no. You could make it chunky. I could make it chunky. I would make it chunky if the apples were different than the one I'm using. Uh The one I'm using are not worth biting on. That's why I'm not keeping them. But I think it would be cool to have, for example, the the crisp or some some kind of an apple like that. Mm -hmm. And then saute them on the side, flambe with calvados, and add that to your sauce in small pieces. So you'd have chunk into your applesauce. Now, that would be cool to do. And that would make it, you know, a little bit more um, palatable for that that purpose. But right.
0: you know, all these fancy apple ciders out there—they're made with apples that are specifically grown, like almost heirloom varieties. Right. They're not made out of Honey Crisp. All these no, high-end no, no, retail no. apples—they're of course—they're on all these kind of old-fashioned heirloom varieties, where they're bringing different hints of acid, different hints of fruit. To a mix, you know, they might use twelve apples, twelve right. different varieties in a cider mix. Correct for some of these hard, um, fancy hard ciders.
1: One thing I forgot, you said you put sugar. I put honey in mine. Mm-hmm. This is the sweetness that I put, and I try to really keep it, as you can see, not sweet. I don't like sweet apple sauce. Mm-hmm. I like apple sauce because I want to be able to take that apple sauce, and if I throw in a little bit of apple cider vinegar in there, I get now very savory apple sauce that I can use with roasted pork or. Whatever, I mean, so many different things, and I can use it for, in terms of savory side. Mm-hmm. And that's the, uh, the one of the main reasons I don't sweeten my applesauce. I also don't really like when it's too sweet.
0: You know, it's, it's funny, when I eat this applesauce, it reminds me so much. I've known you now for 30 years, we'll say, uh, yeah. and more than that, actually. Uh, and it reminds me so much of the difference in how we approach cooking. Right. You know, we've actually come together a little bit more over the years than where we started. You were so traditional, yeah, and I was so seat of my pants. And um, this smoothness and creaminess reminds me so much. You used to puree everything, <laughs> strain it, puree it, everything, and it was just one of your trademarks was yeah. these silky little uh, sauces and and. Uh, red pepper purees and uh, all that sort of thing so it really took me right back to when i first met you and and your love for that kind of texture
1: yeah i mean and to me uh, just so it's clear i don't like a dish with just that Mm -hmm. i like a dish of that with something that is completely opposite in texture which is why you take a nice your can your compound your pan compine, for example and you toast it or you grill it really really nice and dark Mm -hmm. and then you put a little bit of butter on the on the top and you throw that Apple sauce right on top of that. Mm-hmm. That's a nice tartine.
0: I grew up with apple butter. That was uh, something that my mother loved and, and uh, would make, and yeah. also would buy as, yeah. a, as a jar of apple butter. Um, other savory rays. I mean, if, if you want to take this particular sauce, this, just leaving us in the applesauce world, this under a little hot sear of foie gras would mm. be unbelievable, right? Or this Oof. under uh, with maybe a little vanilla bean added to it. Uh, you know, with with a scoop of ice cream yeah. or uh, as a sauce for a apple tart. Yeah. You know, so you got the chunky apples in the tart and then you put the nice little smooth apple, exactly. vanilla bean apple yep. sauce underneath as a, as a sauce and, and then serve that with a shot of Calvados.
1: And I tell you, it makes a fabulous, you put this on the sheet pan in the freezer mm-hmm. and you keep spooning it while it's freezing. So every 15 minutes you go in the freezer and you spoon the sauce. It becomes this nice uh, sorbet, kind of like sorbet yeah. like. <gasps> Oh my god! It's so like delicious. That. Yeah, it's nice. And if you have a, a little ice um, ice cream uh, churner or whatever at home, you just take that sauce and you put it in there. Mm-hmm. It will be like silky and very nice, soft ice cream. It's not an ice cream; it's a sorbet because mm-hmm. there is no uh, dairy in there. And, and
0: that that's... technique you would use with peaches or plums oh, yeah. or any yeah. you make your any sorbet that cantaloupe blueberry sorbet in that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. No, super it's very, fun, super yeah.
0: fun, delicious. Pamela's excited; she's going to go home and make sorbet. Um,
1: absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Why not? Why wouldn't you?
2: I might make something from the cookbook of our next guest. Oh. <laughs> uh,
0: our next guest is Sahana Vid. She's going to be here for two segments to talk about her new book, uh, cookbook, A Bake Away. Uh, and we're talking about the journey of her writing this and creating this book. Uh, when we come back, we have another hour. Don't miss it. Right here on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. And we're back in the Hot Stove Society kitchen on Cairo Radio. The Chef and the Whistle is happening right now. Hi, that's Chef. That's right.
1: E. I'm happy because we're getting into the baking area of the uh, place. Yes, indeed. I'm very We have excited. another hour
0: for you. We're excited that you're you're joining us today. Hopefully, you're in your garden or in your kitchen. Probably sometime, some of you are in your car uh, thinking about being in your garden and your kitchen. Yeah, <laughs> that's a bit hard to bake. And, you know, it's a traditional harvest season. All right? Things are really popping over at our farm. Uh, our um, butternut squashes are getting close. Our cantaloupes are just finishing up. Uh, we God, what a cantaloupe season we've had. Uh, it's been amazing. So uh, lots and lots of things. I hope you're all picking your tomatoes and uh, having fun uh, with the, the beautiful produce that this lovely summer has given us.
1: Oh, my God. it is matter of fact, it's better right on now. the
0: west side now than the east side. It got too hot on the east yeah. side for our garden. We lost almost all of our tomatoes, uh, things like that. You just know, to- in the past, Terry we would average about 85 pounds of tomatoes per plant.
1: Well, wow, that's so long?
0: This year, we're going to average one pound of tomatoes per plant.
1: That's so sad. Isn't that crazy? Yeah.
0: All right, so we got another hour, as I said. Sahana Vish is here to talk about her new book called Bake Away and what she, her process is and uh, where the proceeds are going and all the, the goodness that's happening from her. We've got our Food for Thought Tasty Trivia segment coming up at the end and our... Victim today will be Annie Elmore, one of the instructors here at the Hot Stove Society, who thinks she's tough enough. Oh, she's uh, to definitely take shown us on. that she can kick her yeah. butt, though. We should probably have Sahana stay. She'll probably kick our butt. <laughs> uh, also, uh, the editors of Eater got us thinking about all the terrific variations on meatballs. And as I told you earlier in the show, we I just made uh, another version of the Prosser Meatball Project, uh, which is. Uh, A catchy name for I made a a ton of meatballs. I know, I I love the name. Yeah, exactly. All right, let's jump right in with Sahana Vij and talk about uh, her new book. Uh, You were just featured in the Seattle Times. Congratulations, what a nice article!
4: Thank you. Yeah, it was really exciting. I
0: bet it was. Yeah. Have your big picture? It was like, it was like half a page or something like that.
4: Yeah, it was really nice of them. You to- know,
0: when you do that kind of stuff, you take away newspaper space from Terry and I, and <laughs> yeah.
1: kind of gets us all worked up. <laughs> you know, I didn't think about it that way, but it's true. Every time it's not us, it's someone else. So. Yeah.
0: <laughs> anyway, Sahana, tell us about your new book and how you got this project underway and, and uh, all the good things you're going to try and do with the revenue or, or Proceeds that you make from the book
4: Yeah so I really got into Baking when I was around five My mom and dad kind of taught me In the kitchen they were always Really avid cooks and so I've always been Surrounded by food Growing up and so my mom kind of Taught me french toast when I was Really young and then uh, From then on I kept challenging myself in the kitchen, and um, I kind of, like, self-taught myself um, recipes from, like, Uh allrecipes.com, and, like, Sally's Baking Addiction, and those are, like, my favorites, so I just kind of kept challenging myself, and then in high school, I really learned to love to write, and I kind of wanted to combine the two, so I asked my dad, and he was like, yeah, um, just start writing recipes, and I was like, okay, so I started working on them, and then um, it was about a year and a half in the making, and then uh, we uh, started publishing it, and now it's printed, and uh, yeah, all the proceeds um, are going to No Kid Hungry. So 100% of the author uh, proceeds are going to No Kid Hungry, and um, they're going to help uh, students regain access to low income and free school meals. So I think that's really important, especially um, now that COVID's kind of dying down, but also still going on.
0: Yeah, and we forget how many kids get their sustenance from their school meals. I mean, it's, right. for a lot of kids, it's their only it is, hot meal of the day.
1: It is very yeah. sad because that's, that's, that's a subject that has not really surfaced too much as a conversation for the last year and a half. And we've been in COVID time. But mm-hmm. there are a lot of people who are depending on, on those kind of meals and who have been totally cut off. And, you know, now they have to go and find resources in different places, which hits the food banks straight up and all that stuff. So. Yeah.
0: Which is why we continue to work for the food bank system. That's right. So No Kid Hungry is uh, what part of what group is that part of?
4: Um, they're their own organization. Okay. So um, yeah, they're, they're um, the No Kid Hungry Foundation, and um, yeah, they, they've just been they focus on giving those resources to local um, schools and communities. So uh, like the proceeds that are. People that buy books here, those proceeds will be going to help kids locally here and then so on for, like, different areas of the country. So, yeah, it's um, it's a really cool foundation.
0: You know, uh, if you're a business person out there and you are thinking about your holiday gifts, and I think people have dialed that back a little bit, uh, holiday gifts, but to buy a, a box of these books would be an awesome way to give to your team, uh, n- not only help your team with some thoughtful uh, baking, but also to... Um, raise some money for No Kid right. No Kid Hungry. I think that would be a fun kind of Christmas present. To, uh, this is the time when people in offices start to think about what are we going to do for our holiday this year. Have a baking party, like a wouldn't that be fun to have a little baking party and and do a bake sale out of your book?
4: Yeah, that yeah. would be really great. That That'd would be, be amazing. Yeah, and
0: then double then you could double the uh, the donation to No Kid Hungry. That's so. a fabulous idea. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. So the other thing I want to say before we have to take a break is that. You said, your dad said to, well, write a cookbook or write some recipes. And what I found when I wrote my books, along with Shelly, my co-author, is that a recipe is such a great way to tell a story that you're so familiar with in your life, right? right. Yeah. My grandma did the French toast like this, or my mom, or whatever, yeah. and why and where she got the idea from and how she got her technique. And it's just a natural storytelling process in writing a recipe and, and how it how it became important
1: in your house and in your life. So, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think yeah that's and I think really those really thoughts done. don't come through until you have to sit down and actually think about the recipe. Because yeah. as, as a conversation, you will always go, well, you know, you put two cups of flour, three cups of sugar, or whatever. Mm. As, a, as when you're sitting down and have to write the recipe, all these things come to mind about, oh, that's right, she's doing it like this because, mm. oh, she was doing it like this because, and that becomes the story. And that's, what, that's what's so great about writing a book or writing recipes down, you know, if it, Even if it's just personal for you to pass to your kids or whatever, it's, it's really a nice, a nice way to do it.
0: All right. We're going to co- continue our conversation with Sahana Vij. Uh, her book is called Bake Away, 20 Recipes, Capturing the Spirit of Creativity, Experience, and Expression. Uh, and so uh, we're going to find out all about that when we come back here on the Hot Stove Society radio show, Cairo Radio 97.3 FM. And we're back. It's the Hot Stove Society radio show here in downtown Seattle. We're at the beautiful Hotel Andra, just above Lola Restaurant on the second floor. And we are uh, continuing our conversation with Sahana Vij about her new book called Bake Away. And Terry, I wrote a little uh, promo for this book. Uh, I wrote, what a treat to hear Sahana's stories through her words and experiences. If there was a space in the sibling baking club. Uh, I would most certainly have jumped in line. From Atlanta to, to Mescal Valley, uh, molten lava cake to cinnamon bagels, you won't be able to choose where to start your journey in bake away. My suggestion is to start at page one and live the book page Ooh. by page until you reach Sahana Enlightenment. And I meant that <laughs> when, I, when I read you know all through the pages. Uh, you take people on a journey along with your recipes.
4: Oh, thank you so much. And your testimonial, I'm so grateful for it. So thank you so much.
0: Absolutely. So tell us about uh, the book and its recipes and uh, some f- some favorites that you have in there that you'd like people to try when they buy the book.
4: Yeah, so um, the book essentially is, like you said, kind of like a journey. It's um, Each recipe is inspired by a memory with my family in a different city because my family is kind of scattered throughout the U.S. And each recipe draws from flavors that um, are from that memory in that city. And my one of my personal favorite and my family's personal favorite recipe is the chai cake, because I think none of us had ever tried um, like a tea infused cake. And so that was really cool. And it's become more of a family staple recipe because we've kind of molded it into different recipes. Like we made it into cupcakes instead of a cake. Uh and So it was just really fun. And that's like definitely the family favorite right now.
0: Do you make your own chai? Because a lot of families have their own recipes for, like, a curry or a chive or a masala or something like that. Uh, Or does any chai work?
4: Yeah, not really. For the recipe, any chai works. I primarily like to use loose-leaf tea instead of um, bag tea. Um, I think, like, the flavor is a little bit more richer with loose-leaf tea. So we use that, and... Uh, my dad actually we had he got a loose leaf chi, uh, sorry loose leaf chai tea blend mm-hmm. from London and so uh, when he came back with that I used that for the recipe and then I brought that with me when I made it with family
0: ah so it's like a spice cake
4: yeah basically but what I
0: grew up I was spice cake yeah with our own little version yeah super fun yeah what kind of icing do you put on that
4: oh that's cream cheese frosting
0: cream cheese frosting yeah your favorite yes. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, so that tells a story of a place
4: for you? Yes. So actually that's based um, in like the U District area Mm -hmm. because my mom and I would go to Queen Mary's Tea Room. I'm not sure if you guys have heard about it. Yeah. Yeah, they're temporarily closed right now, but we loved going there growing up. And my mom would always order chai, and that's always been her favorite tea. And so we'd split the uh, pot or I'd get hot cocoa. And so it's always been a really... Um, significant memory for me and one that like we've repeated multiple times. So I really wanted to base recipe off that. And the cake itself holds a really special place in my heart.
0: That's really sweet. Terry, is there a recipe that you have in your, that kind of has that kind of place in baking for you where it tells a story
1: of a city or a place? I think that um, I saw one of the recipe in the book with Atlanta, from Atlanta talking about crepes for breakfast and crepes in my, in my mind, in terms of easy pastry item, is definitely holding a strong memory, because my mom, once a a year or twice a year, would say, okay, today for lunch we're having crepes, so we'd come from school, go home, and we'd have, my mom would be making a stack of crepes, and we'd have the jam and the chocolate, the Nutella, all that stuff on the table, and that was our lunch. I mean, it was definitely what you would call a cheat-cheat lunch, because (laughs) you're not supposed to eat that for lunch, but... I tell you, we go back to school full of crepe, and that was so delicious. Mm. Bananas, chocolate sauce, all that stuff. So as a kid, it was just such a great, incredible memory. And it was definitely a treat because that wasn't something we'd do often. But, you know, once or twice a year, she'd just go, okay, crepe for lunch. (laughs) <laughs> All right, so Samara.
0: Awesome. Uh, one of the craziest recipes I saw in your book uh, was the uh, avocado popsicles from Phoenix. What, you had a you took a trip to Phoenix,
4: yeah. So my cousins actually used to live down in Phoenix. My dad's sister's kids, and we would go down there um, during spring break when I was in middle school. And my grandparents would come down too. And my grandma kind of taught us how to make um, guacamole, mm-hmm. and when when we were young. And so. The avocados were always a big staple for whenever we'd go down there. And so I kind of wanted to take the avocados and make them into a popsicle because I thought it was kind of different and, um, like you said, kind of crazy and, like, out there. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that one's kind of a spin on guacamole.
0: And it's such a simple recipe.
4: Yes, that's what's cool about it Uh is it's kind of like taking – an ingredient that you wouldn't really expect in making it sweeter, which I think is cool too. Uh-huh.
0: Uh huh. Any place um, like Palo Alto? Did you have ideas on going to uh, Stanford University or something of that nature? What sent you to Palo Alto?
4: So I was actually born in the Bay Area, uh-huh. and um, my dad used to take me to a cafe in Palo Alto at the actually at the University Mall that's right next to Stanford. Mm-hmm. So we kind of visited back when I was in elementary school and so this cafe always had these pastries and so that was kind of the inspiration for that but no I didn't really have any strong desire to go to Stanford but um that area has always been kind of uh, significant for me
0: yeah it's such a beautiful area I, we, yeah. we've been down there many times there's a Greek restaurant in Palo Alto that I used to go to and now I don't remember the name but uh, <laughs> It I, was,
1: like, uh, super I like malicious. the uh, banana bread to make you not sick in the car on the road to Hana.
4: Yes, that one. <laughs> that one's really. I've fun. done that
1: road a few times, and I've always driven. I've never been a passenger, but I would not want to be a passenger. <laughs> no. I've had many times in the back where the two people in the back were like, "Okay, we need to stop now."
4: Yeah. <laughs>
0: and so you s- found banana bread actually takes away the car sickness.
4: Well, it was more so. Um, While we were driving, there's lots of people, um, like native people that live in Hawaii, that offer you banana bread while you're driving. And so I thought that was really cool, and I wanted to take a little bit of a different spin on the recipe because I didn't have any, there's no sugar in the recipe because um, my family, we don't eat sugar, added sugar in things. And so um, instead I used an extra banana and made sure it was uh, ripe so that it added more natural sweetener instead of artificial.
0: And if you could just say, like maybe in thirty seconds or a minute, uh, what would you do? To what would you think other kids could do to kind of follow your footsteps and in, in being part of the solution when it comes to No Kid Hungry and writing a book and all the you know, there's a lot of challenges there. But uh, uh, what what would you tell other kids that might want to follow? I think, or young um, adults. You're a young adult. Sorry, what was that? You're a young adult. You're not a kid.
4: Oh, <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Um, I would tell them to get involved in anything that they feel passionate about. And um, if, in terms of giving back to the community, try to find volunteer opportunities because I've always um, loved being a part of those. And, uh, yeah, just trying to find opportunities in the area, possibly at schools or um, local soup kitchens, shelters to give back and volunteer your time for, to give back to the community.
0: Yeah, it's uh, you got to start small. Sometimes the problem seems so large that you get paralyzed. Yeah, but if you start small, you can um, kind of build your way into something
1: fantastic. And once you do it, you realize how small of an impact it has on your life. It's it's like you don't need to do a lot to make a lot of impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's no, it's easy. It's not that hard.
0: Our guest has been Sahana Vij. Uh, her new book called Bake Away, 20 Recipes, Capturing the Spirit and Creativity, Experience, and Expression. Uh, lots of fun uh, people that have uh, endorsed your book. Sonia Chopra, Thomas Keller, Hunter Lewis, uh, Brian Hart Hoffman from the Bake from Scratch. Uh, so much fun, and congratulations on the effort. Yeah, congratulations. And, uh, hopefully well for done. some huge success. You know, you've been on our show now, so Everything else is downhill from here.
1: <laughs> Even if you end up on Muffas.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, meatballs. Why not? Let's do it. It's the Hot Stove Society radio show, Cairo Radio, 97 3 FM. It's time for the Hot Stove Society Meatball Project right here in downtown Seattle. Uh, we are going to. Discuss all things meatballs because our producer is a meatball fanatic, not fan- fanatic. fanatic fanatic fanatic. So, what is it? You My like name s- is Tom Douglas.
1: Oh, and I'm Terry Roachy Roll,
0: the chef exactly. in the hat, and our producer Pamela. Pamela, uh, what wh- where did they come from? Uh, meatball, you used to be a vegetarian. How did you end up being <laughs> a meatball fan? It's like you can't get <laughs> further away from vegetarian than ground beef.
2: <laughs> well, I think it's such a gentle way to eat meat. Small, moist, and fast.
1: Oh, so you'll need one meatball. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and I love how versatile they are, and how many different sauces you can use,
0: and they're they're just the answer for me. And uh, so, one other question before we get rolling on our own little uh, meatball project: uh, Do you like salmon meatballs? Do you like no, turkey meatballs? Do you no, like no? I'm in the tur- traditional
2: turkey. Mostly the you one, like one of the ones that's on here with the zucchini from Otelenge. Mm-hmm. But I also love uh, Bruce uh, Idell's traditional blend—the pork, veal, mm-hmm. beef. Mm-hmm. It's gorgeous. Mm-hmm. But I, I eat the turkey more often.
0: Oh, okay.
1: So I would think then the turkey. Well, I mean, the one with the zucchini is obviously staying moist because of the zucchini. But yes. That's that's I think the secret is of a good meatball. To me, when I think meatball, the first thing that comes to my mind is. How do you make it not dry? Exactly. You know, because some people are going to say, oh, you just take some beef and you ground it. I'm like, if you just do ground beef, uh, you're going to have, imagine if you had a burger that was compressed into a bowl and that was rolled into a pan and then cooked medium rear to medium or medium all the way. And then you put some sauce on it. You're most likely not going to have the best beef you've ever had in your life. You need to have some fat. You have a tough little nugget. Yeah. You're yeah. Gonna, you need some fat because it's also been... Ground so, by the fact that it's been ground, the meat has been extended and everything. So, you need to make sure that you have some fat, and that's I think all moisture, not necessarily fat, but moisture. Like, for example, zucchini used as a moisture. So, I think that's the first thing I that did comes one to my... with
2: blueberries that was incredible. Oh, yeah,
1: I think the turkey be good.
0: Uh, with blueberries,
1: dry no, blueberries, beef. Oh, beef, beef, beef with blueberries. I would do venison, yeah. Well, venison.
0: many, many uh, groups are now promoting uh, like a mushroom combination with beef to try and start to wean. Us off of beef, mm-hmm. like going 20% ground mushroom. I think it's a great it. idea. And they, You know, mushrooms are like 99% water. Yeah. But uh, you got to be careful with water. Water isn't uh, fat. No. Right? There's a big difference, it's right? It's a complete
1: different texture, and yeah. it's a completely different And it drains differently when you cook it, and... You don't get the seal the same way, you don't get that beautiful... You don't get the emulsification. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, the binding is very different, because meat, uh, in general, will absorb some water, but not all the water, right. so... You know, it's definitely a different combination, but...
0: The fat I add when I make meatballs is cheese. You know, cheese is uh, 80% fat, right? So there's whey and there's fat, so you've got the water and the fat. But I use cheese to kind of keep my meatballs moist. And so uh, the ones that I just made, we just made uh, 25 pounds of processor meatballs, which was, uh, we we had bought a half a steer last year, so we still have a ton of ground beef left. Mm -hmm. All the prime cuts are gone, but there's, there's still lots of ground beef left, so... It was uh, 15 pounds of beef, 5 pounds of ground chicken, which I used to use veal for, but right. I liked how light the chicken or the turkey um, lightens it- up the meatball a little bit, and then 5 pounds of Italian sausage, which has got a little oh, higher fat so content. You, you put, you put, so I, put, I mix those three together, and then I mix that with grated Parmesan, a good amount of grated Parmesan. Make all my seasonings, my eggs, my breadcrumbs, everything, and put that together. And then I put in my chopped mozzarella, a little bit larger pieces, but chopped. And I used that Ferndale Mott's from up yeah, in yeah. The north of Bellingham up there, which is delicious. what we're using on Serious Pie now. And if you look in some grocery stores, or actually not, maybe it's just at this point over at the Dahlia Bakery, we have our own Serious Pie marinated mozzarella for sale, uh, which is really delicious. But I, then I put it in a stand mixer. Because to me, what makes a meatball great is its texture. Right. And when you just mix the meat together with your hands, say, you don't get the emulsification you get by Correct. putting it under the paddle in the mixer and beating it a little bit. Mm-hmm. It stays together and it stays whipped. And that, to me, is a, the texture I want in my meatball. And I think that's a step that's often missed Yes, I don't know
2: that. I've been afraid of overworking the protein.
1: That's what I was going to say. I was going to say you need to know what you're doing because whipping the meat is a great thing to do, like you just explained. Mm -hmm. But if you overdo it, you end up with a much more like hot dog texture. kind of, yeah, exactly. You know, which is not what you're looking for in a meatball. Mm -hmm. You still want to have some texture. Also, the grind is important, I think, not to make your meat... So fine, like, you know, you don't put your meat to a RoboCoup and out of it so fine and it becomes pasty. You want to make sure you still have some grind to it, you know, some. Well, the RoboCoup,
0: like a food processor, will definitely make it pasty and correct, not, not correct. where you want to be. Exactly.
1: Yeah, yeah. So you want to use a grinder where it goes through the, through the I don't even know what you call that. The, the plate. The plate. Yeah. You know, and then smaller hole or bigger hole, whatever. But the point is that you want to have some of that texture left in there. Yeah. And and And
0: by whipping it, you take away some of the texture, but you leave a lot of it. Correct. If you put a blade on that, like a food processor blade, you're going to take it all away. Yeah,
1: it will be pasty and a completely different subject. You're using the meat very differently, and I'm not a big fan of that either.
0: So that's more, uh, I would say, of an Italian-style classic meatball. For Mm -hmm. me, it's got anchovy paste in it, tomato paste, eggs, Mm. breadcrumbs. Uh, I always use Chipotle Tabasco because... It gives you that little smokiness from the chipotle, and uh, I love that kind of in the background. Um, Chef, if you were to make a meatball today, what would you do?
1: See, the difference between you and me is I would just use eggs. I would use uh, probably a couple eggs in there. Egg, egg would they
0: come from the chicken coop that's out in the side exactly, yard? Exactly, yeah. yeah mm-hmm. you know,
1: along with the. You that's, know, where, next, that's
0: where mine came from, just saying. Next,
1: next to the goat, then I put some of that goat into <laughs> my meat. I ground some of that goat into oh the meat God. as
0: well. Just some of it? You only threw like a, three three like three a goat, goat out there in the, yeah. in the yard right now? I only now.
1: needed one leg. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, no, anyway, I would use eggs, I would use just a little bit of flour. Flour? Yeah, just a tiny bit of flour. Interesting. Well, because I use a good amount of fat. Um, I'm a big. Mm. I would also probably, if I could, if I, you know, to make it fancy, I would use some diced foie gras. So you're doing more of a mousse. No, 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 no! I'm doing, I'm doing a, a meatball, a meatball. A meatball. <laughs> well, a the lot only of sausages
0: where you 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 make like a mousse and you stuff the casing with a, like a salmon mousse or a yeah, or it's, it's yeah, it's a not really yeah, or, it's not
1: really a mousse because it's not finished with whipped cream or egg but white. That's that sausage, yeah, yeah, but it's definitely in that section of. Mm. It's more like a fast meat, basically, mm-hmm. and that's what I would use for my meatball. But again, good amount of fat because I want to make sure that I don't lose that texture on my on my beef. I don't want it to go away. I also want to use good beef and a mixture of beef and chicken or beef and pork or beef and – no, beef and chicken Mm -hmm. is my number one favorite. So, veal is the same thing. I used to use veal a long time ago, but we don't – for some reason, there is – it's much harder to find veal on the market Mm -hmm. nowadays. Um, But, yeah, beef and chicken, fat, and then um, probably – so, eggs a little flour, and then fresh herbs. I would just use tons tons of fresh herb in there. Tons. and then roll You almost
0: ba- can't use too many herbs. Right. Yeah.
1: And then roll those baby up, and then I would use brown butter, and then give them a nice roasting on the brown butter, mm-hmm. a nice flavor, and then finish in the oven, and you'd have wonderful meatball to eat for dinner. And then on the side of that, most likely I would have a nice tomato sauce to put on the bottom, you know, a nice tomato sauce, a chunky tomato sauce. Mm-hmm. So use those big you know, right now there's so many tomatoes on the on the in the garden, and it's nice to use fresh. In the winter I would use canned tomato canned tomato whole peeled, and then dice them and saute some onion, add the tomato, little white wine, reduce that down, fresh sage, and then put the meatball right on top of that, and mm-hmm. then serve that as a dish with a nice green salad on the side, freeze and you know, so Tim, on, so uh,
0: what other meatballs uh, have you fascinated that you're going to try in the future? You love the lengi books because so they much. are very vegetable forward
2: and herb forward. And herb he's, forward. he's like you; like uh, he finishes everything with a mix of mm. three to five herbs, and uh, that has elevated my cooking. Mm-hmm. The one that I'm interested in was the Korean style. Yeah, I saw uh, that. using Ritz crackers and soy. <laughs> Uh, rich, rich crackers cracker. as your binder as yeah. your kind yes of i thought that was a great because i love the flavor of Ritz crackers <laughs> <laughs> historically but and i rarely use a tomato sauce i'm more of a, a goat yogurt harissa
0: oh yeah uh-huh, so more indian well, in nature yeah so or this, more moroccan i should say that's well, yeah. right, is what i was thinking mm-hmm. like a, which I know you're a fan of. I with love beef. that cool yogurt, like on grilled lamb and things like that. It's so just, delicious! It's just such a nice combination. Yeah, you know what? I have never tried like satsiki. I make satsiki all the time when I make a roast lamb or do or something of that nature. I've never tried a goat yogurt. It's spectacular uh, at the base of my sauce, rather than just a, a full-fat cow oh, yeah.
1: milk yogurt. So. Goat is delicious.
2: It's got that tang that we love. Yeah, we talked about. Try that chef. next time
0: you make meatballs. Try a little yogurt sauce instead of a tomato sauce, yeah. or instead of olive Absolutely. oil or something. It's a it's a super fun way to go. Well, there's our hot stove society meatball project right there. Um, if you want a particular recipe, I don't have one written down. Maybe you do, me, Chef. No. Maybe, no. But me I, could, I could figure it out if you're looking. At, just let us know on uh, Facebook or on our email, and we'll try and write a recipe up for that. And
2: we're going to do uh, a meatball project here at Hot Stove in October. Where people can
0: build their own, for, yeah, take we're gonna home gonna make and put fun, it in their yeah. freezer. Fun. Coming up, we're going to play Rub With Love, Food for Thought, Tasty Trivia. Chef Annie Elmore is going to be our victim, and we will uh, be right back on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Welcome back, everybody. It's time for Food for Thought. Tasty trivia brought to you by Rub With Love. Tasty spice rubs, sauces, and mustards made right here in Ballard. Uh, They bring extra layers of flavor for just about any meal. Rub With Love can help season up those meatballs, and today's winner will get the following Pamela turkey rub for poultry meatballs,
2: mushroom rub for depth of flavor, and of course, ginger pineapple teriyaki for a
0: delicious glaze. Wow, what a fun, fun gift that is! Uh, would tell us the rules of the game if you would, and uh, let's get started. Our three
2: contestants are each going to get five questions related to apples and meatballs. (laughs) Fantastic. (laughs) With with some random trivia thrown in. (laughs) And the loser has to pay for the shipping. Today, I'm going to send the prize to Todd Fryhover because I loved learning the science of apples. And Carol reminds us that if you're going over to visit Apple Country, you can visit the Stemmich. Retail store in Wenatchee, culinary apple in Chelan, or ranch and home in Kennewick. Terry Rotero, you ready for number one? I am she ready. Said
0: ranch and home in, in Yakima. So I, I didn't ah, see it there. What is it? Like a farm store? Yeah. Well, like, a, you know, they have carry Carhartt clothes
1: and farm sounds, equipment. Oh,
2: sounds so fun. Yeah, it is. All right. Number one why does an apple float?
1: Because it's lighter than water?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Kind of. I float. I'm not lighter than water. Uh, Because 25% of its volume is air. Okay.
1: That's the same uh, reason. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
2: And Terry's our scorekeeper, but we trust him, even though he's also a contender. What is the science of Apple growing
1: called? The science of apple growing is called apiculture. I don't know. I have no idea. Think about uh, funny, maybe chef. the French word for apple. Pomegranate? No. Pomme Apiculture. Pomology. Pomology. <laughs> of course. Close
2: enough. Oh Pome- my god. Give, it, give yourself
1: that one. No, 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 no. That was totally not. I, I, Never heard. Little... actually never heard that word before Pomology And but we have some sense.
2: baking questions because of Sahana This one's a little misleading But let's <laughs> give it a try What television show challenges home bakers To create delicious desserts And breads in a series This is the key Of head to head challenges Is it Chopped, The Great British Bake Off The Amazing
1: Bake Or Baking Wars Well I know what the great british bake-off is but that's probably not what you're looking for so what's the next one after that
2: the amazing bake
1: yeah i'm gonna go with that
2: the answer is chopped what number four nobody knows where the first meatball was made but historians believe it was where i'm gonna say
1: uh somewhere in the middle east yep and um yes do i have to pick a country because that's a Sword, l- big area.
2: Or what, about, what do you think the first shape of the meatball was?
1: Flat. Because they're traveling by camel and they're going... It <laughs> they cannot be round. because can I be would be two uh, humps, not a hump. <laughs> <laughs> they take the hump and just put it down. His, no, I would think
2: flat. Historians believe that it was the kofta from Persia. Yeah. So I think you're On pretty the skew, damn close. On kind of flat, you know. Yeah. You get that one. What... Which type of chocolate has the longest
1: shelf life? I would think that it would be the dark chocolate. Yay! Yay! Yeah. There was a trick question there, but yes. Two out of five. <laughs> not, Jeez, bad. Annie, not bad. Annie. It's not going to be very hot today.
2: what was the weight of the largest apple ever picked?
1: Oh, my God, 10 pounds.
0: Whoa.
2: Three pounds. Yeah, I mean.
0: <laughs>
1: this is your
0: apple. I'm just looking at Tom's eyes. Just went for 10. Ooh, I think that was a shot.
2: Um, approximately when did uh, European settlers bring apple seeds
1: to the U.S.? Was it Johnny that came with him?
4: Uh
1: 19th century.
2: The yes. 1600s. <laughs> Don. One for one. In the process... No, oh, no.
1: one for two. <laughs> that's actually zero for two. Zero, zero for, two. Two. <laughs> for two.
2: All right. On to baking. In the process of cake baking, which one of the following is not a raising agent? Steam, yeast, powdered sugar, or baking powder?
3: A uh, raising agent. Steam, yeast...
2: Baking powder, and what else? Powdered sugar. I'm going to say powdered sugar. Correct. Of course you're correct. Yay! Uh, Vanilla sponge cake, sandwiched with jam and cream filling, is named after which British monarch? Elizabeth I, Elizabeth II, or Victoria? Victoria? Yay! Yes! All right, I'm tied with Chef Terry. Yes, and for one more question. What type of... Fruit puree can be and is often used as a substitute for fats when baking. Apple.
1: Whoa! Oh. Screaming into the lead. Yeah! Lead. Nice
0: job, Annie.
1: Thank nice. you. Nice!
2: And she takes the lead. Mr. Douglas, when did the Canadian uh, John McIntosh uh, discover the McIntosh Apple.
0: Approximately. Approximately, uh, the 19th century.
2: <laughs> you can't see my answer. <laughs> we use that
0: one a lot. The late 1700s. Yeah, so the 19th century. Like no, like, <laughs> you said approximately.
2: What? Considering do, there's 21 centuries,
0: <laughs> I'm pretty close. <laughs> what do? And the, that's AD. Uh, number
2: two. What do the Dutch call meatballs? Uh balls <laughs> Bitter ballin
0: Yeah, exactly
2: <laughs> Especially when they're made
0: from bitter melon
2: In ancient Greece Tossing an apple to a girl Was a traditional proposal of marriage What was her acceptance action? <laughs> ah! She threw it back <laughs> I know I was going to say She threw it right back at you <laughs> she took a bite Eve took a bite of the apple Yes Catching it Oh, come on. If he threw it to her, she has to catch it to accept. Really?
4: Yes. Well, what like if she, she can't catch it? Is if she me? dropped
2: it, then she'll... She she does not get married.
4: <laughs> Don.
1: I know, that's a pretty rough one.
4: I know. <laughs> I guess what? I'll be, never be married in that country.
2: <laughs> what state in America made the world's largest meatball? Oh, it has to be Nebraska. The Italian-American club of Hilton Head... South Carolina, South Carolina took the record in November of 2017 with a massive 1,700-pound meatball. It's oh, <laughs> yeah. close.
0: Once you put the meatball up, it's fairly close to Nebraska.
2: <laughs> <laughs> from South Carolina. <laughs> Number five. What's the biggest difference between
0: margarine and butter? Uh, one's from a cow and one's not.
2: Okay, you can have that. <laughs> yeah, Plant-based versus dairy. He's got one. <laughs>
0: All right. I think I lost in a big way. Uh, I am the victim. And and Triumph. I appreciate appreciate any sad cards or anything you want to send to me for being (laughs) the victim of Annie Elmore and (laughs) Chef Terry. If you uh, want to be part of our show, you can join the community on Facebook live at Hot Stove Society Radio Show. You're listening to us on Cairo, of course, and the show is produced by Pam Hinkley, technical by Sean McFadden, and our editor is Sean Don't Call Me do And remember, if you miss any episode of Hot Stove Society Show... On Cairo, you can listen via podcast. Just subscribe to your favorite podcast app or go look for the video on Facebook. Thanks for listening and have a fabulous weekend.